Continuing on our study of Christian maturity, uh, most of us here are pretty mature. We've already established that. We were just sitting here complaining about all our ailments, so you know we're really mature. So, But uh, this lesson this week is on temptation, and this will carry over into our final lesson next week. Uh, we talked last time, and we've been talking over a number of weeks about this relationship that we have with God and the way we have relationships with people as well. And it's a, just one way of looking at our relationship with God. And remember, we've talked about how God first spoke to us, and then we speak back to him as well. And both of those things are important for our relationship with him. You can't just say, well, I listened. You know, that idea of praying, of worshiping, of doing things. Remember we talked last time, what you do is part of your conversation with God. And if you look at it as conversation, a lot of it ends up making a bit more sense. But God spoke to us. We speak back to him. That's our relationship. And as that conversation goes back and forth, our relationship with him builds, and it builds into love. We know that. We've illustrated that before. So sin, as we talked about last time, partly is an interruption of our conversation with God. We've listened to God. If you want to talk about sin with regard to the law, God spoke to us in the law, and part of our speaking back to God is obedience to the law. We don't want to be legalist, but our way of dealing with the law, our way of living in Christ, is part of our conversation back to him. And we must do that if we're going to have a relationship with God. Again, that's just another way of looking at what our relationship with God is like. Remember, we said that Adam and Eve, uh, part of their, big part of their problem with um, original sin was what? Was stopping their conversation with God. God had spoken to them. He created. He gave them law, right? Don't eat of the fruit. Probably gave them other law as well that he doesn't tell us about. But he gave them law. He spoke with them. He began the conversation. And we illustrated last time also how uh, John Milton had shown what his concept, what Milton's concept was of the talk back of Adam and Eve, how they worshiped God. They looked at his creation, talked about God's creation back to God in order to glorify God. So God talked with Adam and Eve and at their separation from him, what was that? It was an interrupted of the interruption of their conversation. They basically said, no, we're not listening to your law anymore, okay? They're not having that part of the conversation back to God. They're not speaking to God anymore. They're hiding from him, right? And their relationship with one another was interrupted as well. They uh, clothed themselves. They separated themselves from each other as well. So this fits very well, the concept of sin and the interruption of the conversation between God and his people. So it's an interesting way to think about it. It's one way of thinking about that relationship with God. So God discloses himself to us many ways in his creation, in his law, certainly in his Bible, and then we speak back to him in uh, that dialogue. Another thing that happens with sin uh, this, is a, this is a prologue that we need to be considering as we talk about temptation. Um, that interruption of that conversation is what? Turning to talk to somebody else, right? Again, we use Adam and Eve as our paradigm. Adam and Eve 
decided they were going to talk to somebody else. They weren't going to talk to God, were they? They were going to listen to Satan, and they were going to talk back to him in obedience and in even in conversation. So um, they turned away from God, but the main thing about sin, the main thing about our uh, relationships, about our honoring of God, is the fact that we turn away from him. Uh, We can say, well, something else got my attention, okay? I was tempted, right? And that's all fine. But this is all about turning away from God. It's not about something got in my way, and therefore I decided to do something else. Yes, that's true. That happens. But really, the decision that's made here is the turning away from God. And we have to look at it that way. Um, We like to think that something else is responsible some other temptation, something else is responsible, but really what's responsible here is our turning away. Um, Matthew 25, 40. I'm sorry I didn't include everything on your handout today. It might look like I did. It's not the whole Bible, but um, some of these things may not be in there. But Matthew 25, 40, uh, and the king will answer them, truly I say to you, As you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. And again, this is uh, reinforcing the idea that what we do is part of our conversation with God. You know, this is Jesus, Jesus speaking. And Jesus is saying, uh, in that you did anything to anybody else, you helped them, or you didn't help them, okay, or you did something contrary to them, that's part of your conversation with me. Truly, as I say to you, as you did it to me, of, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. What you do in your life is your conversation with God. It is in relation to Jesus Christ, and you have to see it that way. Uh, we sometimes think that we're functioning independently. I think most of us here know better than that, but we do go around like that. We, uh, even we, you know, think we're doing things all in and of ourselves, and it makes no difference to God. It makes no difference to our relationship with God, some of the things that we do. But the fact of the matter is, and I think that Matthew 25, 40 is a good illustration of that in the Bible, um, what we do is part of our conversation with God. Ask yourself that. You can even conjure in your own mind what your week has been like in the last week. Ask yourself the things that you've done. Remember some of the things that you've done and ask yourself what your conversation with God has been like in doing those things. What are you demonstrating to God in what you do? It is part of the conversation. So what is temptation? I think when we think about temptation, we generally think, well, something came at me, right? You know, the chocolate cake, okay, uh, the magazine pictures, you know, the movies prompting you to do whatever, okay? It's, it's all about what's coming at you, right? Temptation. The devil, right? Temptation. It's coming at you, isn't it? But you also know that there's internal temptation. And probably internal temptation is more important than what's coming at you, okay? Because we have a tendency to be in a particular way. We are fallen in sin, okay? We're depraved, okay? And that affects every part of our life. So for us to say temptation 
and to think that this is all about something that's coming at you, all that's something that's internal is not a good way to think of it, and it's probably wrong in most of its parts. There are things that come at you. Satan does tempt you, but we also have within us this tendency to go in those directions. So is temptation external or internal? You have to keep that in mind. Ask yourself that question. So temptation is also what? We know from the Bible, temptation is putting us to the test, isn't it? God uses temptation to show us ourselves, basically. God knows our heart. He knows our fallenness. He knows what our tendencies are. But he's putting us to the test. He's demonstrating to us what we are like, okay? He's showing us our failures, our shortcomings. 1 Corinthians um, 10.9, speaking actually about putting Christ to the test. We must not put Christ to the test. This is to show that temptation is a testing. We must must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. Now this refers to, this is 1 Corinthians 10.9, but it refers to Numbers 21.5 and 6, which says, uh, And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of, the, out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. This relates again to this 1 Corinthians 10.9. We must not put Christ to the test. refers to this time when they were uh, speaking against God and against Moses. Um, It's our attempt to tempt God, to test God. And of course, that's an ugly idea to us, isn't it? Testing God. But we do that, don't we? What is God going to do with this? Can I influence God somehow? Okay, Our most... Uh, favorite way, I think, our favorite way to try to influence God is with our prayers, you know? What do you do when you say your prayer, when you pray each day? Well, a lot of people, including myself sometimes, we sit down, I've got my list. The first thing I do is get out my list. And I start thinking about all the people, all the things in that list. And um, am I addressing God as the uh, holy uh, person that he is? And uh, Am I asking him things? Am I tempting him to things? Am I thinking, okay, we can't really tempt God, but am I thinking that I'm going to influence him with those prayers? God listens to our prayers, but he also knows what our needs are before we even say. You remember last time we we talked about um, God knows our prayers. He knows our needs. So why pray, right? Isn't that one of the questions people ask? Why do you pray if he already knows? Well, again, that's your relationship with God. You come, he knows what your needs are, but uh, to have that intimate conversation with God, to go to him and tell him what's on your heart and soul. You remember family members, your parents, your spouse, they know what's going on with you, okay? They know when you get grouchy and, you know, when you're off, They know what's going on with you. They know what your problems are in most circumstances. Sometimes they don't. And sometimes you go to them and you tell them what they already know. This thing is really bothering me. And most of the time they know that. But the act of talking back and forth brings you closer together. And it's the same with God. And that's why both parts of this conversation are important. 
God speaking to us, we speaking back to him, we talking uh, to him about um, what our needs are. And so that idea of having a list and talking with him is part of your intimate conversation with God. But we don't want to be putting um, Christ to the test as the Israelites did. So temptation. Temptation is very often an ugly word. It's not four letters, okay? We can count. There's a lot of letters there, okay? But temptation, we say, oh, you were tempted, okay? Is temptation a sin, okay? Temptation is not a sin, okay? You can tempt yourself. You can do things to yourself to uh, bring you into temptation, you know? I do that on Amazon a lot, you know? Go through the pages and figure out what I want, you know, and tempt myself to buy all kinds of things. Uh, But temptation in and of itself is not a sin. Things that come at you from the outside are not a sin. It's what your own heart is saying about those things. It's about uh, how we respond to that that that, uh, results in sin. So there is a difference between temptation and sin. The difference um, uh, in that um, one is an action and one is a testing. God is putting us to the test. Maybe perhaps even we ourselves are putting ourselves to the test. I tested myself on Amazon again last night. And I won't tell you whether I prevailed or not. So, so James 1, 12 through 15. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is, has conceived, give, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. It tells us, doesn't it, right? We can't, uh, God doesn't tempt us. He doesn't tempt us with evil. Um, but that temptation is part of our inner being, all right? Some of us, we're all tempted to different things. You know, some of us are tempted to drive fast, okay? Some of us are tempted to spend too much money, okay? Some of us are tempted to all kinds of other things. And that's internal, isn't it? A lot of our temptation, probably all of our temptation, comes from within us. We can say, well, the devil came at me. Well, if you weren't susceptible... It wouldn't make any difference. You know, I watched that movie, and as a result, I went in this direction. Okay? You still, it's uh, an internal thing that makes you go in that direct uh, direction. Again, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Okay? Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. I think you all actually have heard that maybe even know it by heart. It's a very common passage for us to use. So we can ascribe temptation to Satan. It's not always true. Sometimes it is. We remember also that Satan is under God's control as well. God is putting us to the test so that we can become stronger. He sanctifies us in that way. Um, So sometimes we entertain external temptations We've talked about that. We know it happens. We know it's a big part of our lives. Um, 
looking at, uh, I wanted to consider the um, idea that, uh, again, we should not be getting uh, guilt from the idea of temptation. You know, sometimes we go into a situation and we might be tempted. You know, you might be in the magazine store and there's all kinds of lascivious magazines there and you feel guilty because you've been around them at all, right? Well, just temptation shouldn't give us a sense of guilt, just like temptation itself is not sin. It doesn't necessarily, shouldn't necessarily give us a sense of guilt. Uh, sometimes we acquire false guilt, right? We, um, we, we say we're guilty of uh, something that we may not be. Temptation itself is not sin and therefore should not cause us to be guilty. But it should direct us to an examination of our own hearts. Suppose we're tempted and we respond. We should examine our own hearts to see where we really are with that. And so we live... Go ahead. Mm-hmm. We're to, and it's, I, I'm sorry I didn't make it clear, but you know we have external temptation. I think you understand that, and that is not your sin. Okay, uh, what this is just said in this passage is that we have internal tendencies that make us act upon temptations. Okay, those are two different things. We have an internal tendency, each person, uh, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Okay. There's an internal and an external. It's that internal fallenness that makes you react to temptation in a particular way. And so there's a difference between those two. It's like, uh, you know, as again, temptation, we don't see temptation itself as being sin. And we're going to talk here about our own fallen estate. You know, we're constantly in this um, depraved way, affects our whole being, and uh, so we are constantly subject to temptation. We're, we're subject to sin because of our fallen estate, because we're not holy at this point. So um, about Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 15, talking about repentance unto life. Repentance unto life, as we've talked about oh, a year or so ago, is the fact that we live in repentance, And why do we live in repentance? Why do we have repentance unto life? Because we know our fallen estate. We know that we have original sin. We know what our hearts are like. And um, repentance unto life lets us live in that knowledge all the time. And that actually helps us to uh, fight temptation. Uh, I'll read uh, chapter 15, paragraph 1. Westminster Confession, repentance unto life is an evangelical grace, okay, it means God gives it to you, the doctrine whereof is to be preached by every minister of the gospel, 
as well as that of faith in Christ. So what it's saying here is that preaching repentance up up unto life is way up there in terms of what a gospel minister should be doing. We know our ministers talk to us about original sin, about our own sin, about the fact that we need to be repentant. It's a big part of our theology and that we need to live in that so that we know our own hearts, we know what our tendencies are to respond. And so repentance unto life, it's a way of life, actually. It's living in repentance, not only for original sin, but for what we ourselves have done and for the ways that we we live at this time. Uh, Zechariah 2.10, with regard to uh, the Confession, chapter 15, says, uh, Zechariah 12.10 Uh, And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him who they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly for him as one weeps over a firstborn. So this is another view of uh, repentance unto life. We live in repentance, what? Because we know our fallen estate, we know original sin, but also uh, we know what has happened, what reminds us what hap- about this whole thing is the crucifixion of Jesus Christ himself, okay? Do we, are we repentant? Are we sorry, if you want to say it that way? Are we repentant because we know that Jesus Christ died for our sins? Isn't that enough? If we just take that one event... Jesus, our Savior, the man, the God, has died for our sins. Doesn't that make us live in repentance? Because that had to occur if we were to continue in eternal life. So repentance unto life is uh, not only a remembrance of our fallen estate, but also it's a a remembrance of what Jesus has done for us. Do we live in repentance? Do we live in that um, sorrow? Do we live in that um, that um, carefulness of uh, our sin because we know that Jesus died for us? Is that enough to be that flag that says, listen, we need to be repentant because our Lord has died for us? Another part of repentance unto life should bring to mind Jesus Christ and his death for our sin. Acts eleven eighteen. When they heard these things, they fell silent, and they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. So, again, this is to illustrate how important repentance is in our theology and our lives. Not only preaching Jesus Christ, okay, as we'd said before, but way up there is is teaching repentance unto life, because that um, reminds us also of the work that Jesus has done for us. Um, Luke twenty four forty seven, and that repentance for the forgiveness, forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. Again, the importance of us living in repentance. Mark 1, 14 and 15, Jesus begins his ministry. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and said, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Again, repentance. We live in repentance. Living in repentance, once again, is something that helps us to deal with temptation. 
Uh, and this is, again, something that God has at, at, at the very top of the things that he wants us to be taught. Acts 20, 21, uh, I'm sorry, Acts 20, uh, verses 20 to 21, how did I not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public from house to house, testifying both to the Jews and to to the Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ? Paul puts both together there, doesn't he? Repentance unto life. Repentance under our life now, it affects our life today. How we live, repentance does, but also it's repentance unto eternal life because we put our faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, Westminster Confession, chapter 17, paragraph 3, I have on your handout there, the perseverance of the saints, again, addressing the idea of temptation. Nevertheless, they may, those who are um, converted, regenerated, they may, through the temptations of Satan and of the world, the prevalency of corruption remaining in them and the neglect of means of their preservation fall into grievous sins and for a time continue therein, whereby they incur God's displeasure and grieve his Holy Spirit, come to be deprived of some measure of their graces and comforts, have their hearts hardened and their, and their consciences wounded, hurt and scandalize others, and bring temporal judgments upon themselves." So again, we see here in this part of the Westminster Confession, there's a um, distinction made between temptation, temptations of Satan and and of the world in that first sentence, um, and then prevalency of corruption remaining in them. Those are two different things. Temptation, and we have the prevalency of corruption remaining within us. Both of those can result in all of those things that's further described in that paragraph. Um, Chapter 18 of the Confession again, true believers may have the assurance of their salvation diverse ways shaken, diminished, and intermitted as by negligence of preserving of it, by falling into some special sin which woundeth the conscience and grieveth the spirit, by some sudden and vehement temptation, by God's withdrawing the light of his countenance, and suffering even such as fear him to walk in darkness and to have no light, yet are they never utterly destitute of the seed of God and and life of faith, that love of Christ and the brethren, that sincerity of heart and conscience of duty, out of which by the operation of the Spirit this assurance may may in due time be revived, and by by the which in the meantime they are supported from utter despair." Wow. Big paragraph, huh? So it says, true believers may have their assurance. This is a paragraph about assurance. May have their assurance of their salvation shaken, okay? Not destroyed, but shaken. Um, Shaken, diminished, intermitted, you know, reduced. Their assurance may be less for them by negligence of preserving it. We've talked about the means of grace. Remember how the means of grace is one of the ways that we talk back to God, prayer, worship, hearing the word, taking the sacraments, right? Uh, If we neglect those things, that interrupts that conversation with God, doesn't it? You're not talking back to to him the way he has told us to talk back to him. So if we neglect those things, we are going to have trouble with our assurance. We're no longer so strongly in that conversation. By falling into some special sin which woundeth the conscience, okay? 
committing a sin and grieveth the spirit. Again, it interrupts that, that uh, if we fall into a grievous sin, we're interrupting that conversation with God because we're doing something that does not feed that conversation. Um, and so uh, we fall into that sin that wounds our conscience and grieves the spirit. Again, grieving the spirit is interrupting our communion with him, our conversation, by some sudden or vehement temptation. Again, we can be strongly tempted in a lot of ways, and um, temptation is uh, external, can be internal as well, but it can be strong enough to even shake your assurance. Um, there's a quote from the book that we've been, I've been using. You guys don't have a copy. Uh, uh, Sinclair Ferguson says, the difference between being tested in order to prove the genuineness of our faith and being tempted in the sense of being incited to sin. So we have to distinguish those two. We know, we've said before, that God tests us, okay? He puts things in our path that makes us stronger. May, we may fall into sin as a result of that, as a result of our internal motivations. Um, but it's a test, and it's a test not for God to figure out what we're like. It's a test to show us what we're like. Remember when you were in school and you had a test, you took a test? Um, the test showed mostly to you where you were in terms of knowing what you were supposed to know. And so testing in terms of temptation is the same thing. Temptation is um, a test, and it shows us things about ourselves. Um, so from Sinclair Ferguson, look at De Deuteronomy 8, uh, 1 to 3. I remember the Lord your God, the whole commandment that I command you today, you shall be careful to do, that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you uh, these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. Uh, and he humbled you, and he let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the, word, of mouth of the Lord. And we know that passage very well, but again, we're talking about temptation here. Uh, God, if we use Israel as an example or as a paradigm, um, he had them through the wilderness. And for what purpose in verse 2? To humble, to test. And that humbling and testing is teaching them, okay? It's not uh, necessarily a striking or a chastisement. It is partly that, but it's for the education, for the sanctification of his people. These temptations in the wilderness to humble and to test, again, the purpose of uh, temptation in our lives. God is constantly working for our sanctification. Judges 2, 21 to 23, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations that Joshua left when he died in order to test Israel by them, and whether they will take care to walk in the way of the Lord as their fathers did or not. So the Lord left those nations, not driving them out quickly, and he did not give them into the, to the hand of Joshua. We remember that story. We remember that Old Testament account of what it was like for the Israelites. 
Uh, not all the nations were driven out. God had said that they should drive everybody out, right? But by providence, that did not occur. And here is the purpose, in order to test Israel, okay? We, of course, we apply this to our own lives. This, be, this becomes something that we understand ourselves. Why do we live in this world the way it is today, okay? Uh, well, the world has fallen, it's broken, so forth and so on. But why does God have us as Christians in this world with all these things going on, to test us, to educate us, to sanctify us. And I think when, when we look at uh, that, um, the nation of Israel in the Old Testament as that example, that 40 years in the wilderness of being tested and uh, looking at their own faith and God showing what their own faith is like, we can see once again a real purpose to why we're here in a fallen world. Uh, we, are we post-Christian or pre-Christian? There's all kinds of philosophies and things out there about where the church is at this time, okay? And uh, there's been some very good articles recently about how we might be in a, in a, in a pre-Christian society. We like to think about, about ourselves being in a post-Christian society, right? Fewer people go to church, you know, there's no Christian values in, in, in the public square, so forth and so on. But some people think we might actually be in a pre-Christian situation here where things are building up. We could argue that. I won't argue it with you because I can't. But um, again, why are we here in this situation? Why are we being uh, uh, allowed to live in a fallen world? Well, there's a lot of work that needs to be done here, right? A lot of work that needs to be done in each one of us. So these temptations are part of our sanctification. Um, this is an example again. I just want to give you this idea so that you can turn it over in your mind again. Um, we've said briefly uh, before that, um, please don't go to sleep on me here, but um, we've said before that a good poem needs to stand on its own. That means if you wrote a poem in the year 200, we should be able to read it today and understand it and, it, and, and have some application to ourselves. And um, this um, uh, passage from Judges here is one example of that. We can see the testing of Israel, okay? This account that God gives us in the Old Testament is an account, just as the whole Bible is, that stands on its own. It means it applies throughout the ages. And we can see that with this uh, example from the testing of Israel that applies to us today. It's not just a story about uh, Israel. It's not just a story about the development of the kingdom and so forth and so on. It's an account that stands on its own. It's an account that can relate to us today. And we should be able to see how it relates to us. And this is rather specific in terms of the testing of Israel and the testing of ourselves and how these accounts in the Bible stand on their own. They are applicable to all ages. So temptation is a part of our sanctification. Uh, Judges 3, 1 through 4. Now these are the nations that the Lord left uh, to test them, uh, to test Israel by them. That is, all in Israel who had not experienced all the wars in Canaan. So that 40 years, there were some that not, had not experienced that 40 years. They might have been young. They might have been born right before Israel went into the promised land. Uh, so it says... Uh, these are the nations that the Lord left to test, to test Israel by them. 
that is, all in Israel who had not experienced all the wars in Canaan. They had not experienced that 40-year period uh, or even the wars before. So God left nations there in order to continue to test them. It was only in order that the generations of the people of Israel might know war to teach war to those who had not known it before. These are the nations, the five lords of the Philistines, all the Canaanites and the Sidonians and the Hivites who lived on Mount Lebanon from Mount Baal Hermon as far as the Bohemoth. They were for the testing of Israel to know whether Israel would would obey the commandments of, of the Lord which he commanded their fathers by the hand of Moses. So again, this is something we can relate to ourselves. Why do we live in a fallen world? We complain about this a lot, don't we? You know, we're in a fallen world. Well, why are we in a fallen world? We have to also look to ourselves. This is God working on us. If we were glorified, if we were in heaven with God at this point, if God were not still working on our sanctification, we would not need this world for testing and teaching us, for sanctifying us. Second um, Chronicles 32, 26 to 31, about Hezekiah. It's a long passage. I won't read the whole thing. I think it's on your handout. Um, but uh, verse 26, this is Second Chronicles 32, 26. But Hezekiah um, humbled himself for the pride of his heart, both he and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the wrath of the Lord did not come upon them in the days of Hezekiah. So again, Hezekiah was taught also by the things that happened to him in his life. Verse 31, And so in the matter of the envoys of the princes of Babylon, who had been sent to him to inquire about the sign that that had been done in the land, God left him to himself in order to test him and to know all that was in his heart. So what is, what is this? God leaves you to yourself. You guys, we all have that experience. We're in a place that we don't understand. We don't get it. Uh, we might have extreme temptation, okay? And what does God do? He gives us those extreme forms of temptation, things that happen in our lives. Uh, and he might, quote, leave us to ourselves, not permanently, but for a period so that we can see how we respond to those temptations. So, and sometimes that's necessary. You know, sometimes when, um, suppose you're raising a child or you're a teacher and you have a classroom and you've been working incessantly with somebody or even in your business uh, or even in the community, you've been working incessantly trying to get somebody to improve or do something in a particular way, And then finally, you may get the idea that the best thing for that person is to leave them to themselves. Okay, you're not responding. We'll let you go, see what happens to you. We do that in managing people in our own lives, and of course, God does that to us also. He leaves us to ourselves sometimes. It sounds ominous, doesn't it? Okay, God leaving you to yourself. He could do that permanently, okay? Sometimes he does that. He'll leave you to yourself permanently. But for Christians, he may leave you to yourself so that you come to understand what you are like and, of course, more so what God is like as well. So go ahead, Roger. Right. 
Right, exactly. Well, excommunication is, is, is really separating people from a, a communion in a church or allowing them to uh, you know, be in the communion of the church without taking uh, the sacraments. It's, that's a very kind of strict, strict um, definition of it. But yes, uh, being outside of the blessings of God, yes, can be a situation where you're uh, left to yourself to learn yourself. And of course, we are, what we hope with excommunication, as you say, is that people will learn from it. Imagine being not allowed to take communion in your church. Okay, That's a, an ominous notion to us. And we do that sometimes. Sometimes we have to ask people not to commune in order that they can consider, that they can be left to themselves rather than maybe taking um, for granted the means of grace that God has given us. So yes, Communication can be interpreted that way. Um, Romans one twenty four. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, uh, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. We, I think, we know Romans one pretty well. Uh, very clear. God can give people up to their own hearts, uh, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, to their sin, in order that they might learn. And be um, and be uh, sanctified. Now, some of those that God gave up to their own impurities are never regenerated. Uh, they never come to the Lord. They're left to themselves, and you know they are not in heaven eternally. Uh, James one fifteen. Then desire, when it is uh, conceived, gives birth to sin. We've read this before. And sin, when it is full, fully grown, brings forth death. Okay, similar sequence to what we read before. What happens? Our internal desires uh, give birth to sin, okay, things that we do or think, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death, brings forth separation from God, right? 1 Corinthians 10.13, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. I think we all like this verse, don't we, huh? We rely upon this, don't we? Okay, I'm going to be able to get over this. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Okay. But normally when we read this verse, we're reading that first part, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. So we relax, don't we? We go, oh, he's not going to overtempt us. I'm not going to uh, drift totally away from God, and so forth and so on. We like to hear that, don't we? But the rest of this verse, God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. What is that way of escape? Okay, God shows you how to get out of it, right? Or is that really a much bigger thing? What is the way of escape? What is God doing with this temptation? You remember, he is sanctifying you. He is changing you. He's purifying you with fire, okay? So it's not just, well, here's the escape. Here's the exit door, okay? It's a, there's a lot of work in this particular phrase. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape. And that way of escape is your sanctification, that the Holy Spirit does with you. And that's a lot of work, all right? Again, we like to talk about the uh, first part of this, no temptation has overtaken you. 
because we relax and we feel that God is going to take care of us and we don't have to worry about it so much, do we? But really, at the end of this verse, he's telling us about a way of escape. And it's not a simple way of escape always. It's not always all of a sudden you're given a vision and you know what to do. It's, uh, it's work, it's prayer, it's immersing yourself in God once again. Um, and so um, it's a little more of a challenge than what we would typically uh, put into that uh, verse. Um, it's always a question about the Lord's Prayer. Lead us not into temptation, right? And the question is, God lead us into temptation. Um, think about that as we're reading here. Matthew 6, 5 to 13, that's where I pulled the Lord's Prayer from in this case. Um, verse 5, and when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. Uh, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, and they may be seen uh, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. Now we talked about this a little bit here a few weeks ago about um, you know what the particular relationships with God are like. We talked about and uh, we talked about Augustine's ideas of the curious and the studious. Okay, these people described in verse five are the curious. They're the ones that have a knowledge, and they want to isolate it to themselves. They're not concerned about relating to God with that knowledge. They're, they're the ones that are in that darker globe that really don't relate to anything outside themselves. And you can see that here. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. The only thing that they're concerned about is themselves and what their knowledge is and people being seen by them, truly I say to you that they have received their reward. Again, they're in that dark globe that doesn't really relate to anything else. Verse 6, but when you pray, go into your room, shut the door, pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Isn't that a good description of this dialogue that we've been talking about? What was the first part of this um, this paradigm of infinite of, of intimate dialogue it was the first person reveals a secret to the second person right and the second person reveals a secret to the first person these are intimate things reveals intimate things this goes back and forth right this is the um, the uh, conversation of romance isn't it we say intimate things to each other and that draws us together and this verse 6, but when you pray, go into your room, shut the door, okay, and pray to your Father who is in secret. You're having an intimate conversation with him, even when we say the Lord's Prayer together. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. The Lord has given us uh, some self-disclosure, some revelation about himself. We talk back to him again, both of those things in secret. Verse 7, and when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard uh, for their many words. Again, is that an intimate conversation? It's not an intimate conversation. Somebody who wants to be seen and heard uh, for their own reasons, for their own glorification. And that's not the intimate conversation that we have with God. Verse 8, do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Okay? He knows it, so let's forget about the prayer thing, right? No. 
when you, even when you're telling God or anybody else, as we illustrated earlier, it's an intimate conversation, even when that person knows what you're telling them, if it's something that's within your heart and is very important to you. So it's an act of intimacy. Pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Um, repeating back, really, what God has already said to us. God's talked to us about heaven. We know he's our Father, he's our Sovereign, he's holy, okay? So in the beginning of the Lord's Prayer, we're repeating back to him. This is our intimate conversation with him. Hallowed be your name. God has taught us that. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's happening, okay? We're repeating back again what God has told us. It's our part of the intimate conversation to repeat that back to him. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors and lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil. So does God lead us into temptation? Okay. God gives us our lives. He gives us providence. But does he lead us into temptation? Well, he doesn't have to, does he? I mean, these things are there. And our internal motivations are what make these things um, temptations to us. So we're asking that God sustain us in ourselves, in our fallen estate. We're fallen. We have trouble uh, being uh, holy. We have trouble being without sin. Uh, but God sustains us against these, these temptations, knowing what our heart is. Um, we are, by saying this, by asking that God keep us from temptation, we're affirming what we know about ourselves, that we're tempted to fall, that we have a tendency to fall. We have this internal motivation to act on temptations that come into our lives. Uh, Calvin, a uh, little quotation from Calvin, he says, uh, and this is concerning the Lord's Prayer, he says, here is intended um, the intention here is intended the interior temptation, which may aptly be termed the devil's lash for whipping up our concupiscence. Can anybody here spell concupiscence? Not an easy one, okay? But here, Calvin said uh, in this phrase, um, lead us not into temptation, he's talking about uh, these uh, interior, these our, our, our response to temptations that come into our lives. Uh, he intended the interior temptation. He's, in, he's, he's talking about, the Lord's Prayer is talking about our tendency, our sinfulness that causes us to act on temptations, which may be aptly termed the devil's lash. That's a, that's a, a phrase meaning um, it's temptation that comes from outside for whipping up our concupiscence. Concupiscence is your tendency to go in the wrong direction, okay? And... Um, the purpose for saying this in the Lord Prayer, Calvin is saying, um, is to show us that that's our tendency, and that's what we need to uh, work with God, work uh, in God uh, to overcome that. So um, next week, we're going to finish up temptation, more to be said about temptation. I know you're all experts on temptation, so it's hard to teach you stuff, but uh, we will continue and um, we'll have a particular emphasis on one of God's poems, Psalm 51. We'll talk about it in terms of poetry and also the Bible. So let's, let's close in prayer. Lord, we thank you for this day.